The Fed is tapering again. Are we all going to die? You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This here is David Hansen. I'm alive. Sorry, I, I, I got lost there. I was thinking about this Fed taper. It's just got me, it's got me so, so crazy, David. Crazy. Everyone. Before we get to that, uh, we've got uh, the show today. Brought to, brought to our viewers and listeners, as always, by The Motley Fool. Uh, we've got a special offer for viewers. Um, they can email WTMIOffer, that's all one word, WTMIOffer at fool.com, and get a special report. Special report is some of Warren Buffett's greatest wisdom. It's free. Go ahead and do it. Um, makes us happy. Hopefully it'll make that it happy will. as well. It will. It will. And, and I also have to mention we still have our competition going on. 100th show coming up next week. And ahead of that show, uh, you can email us, WTMI, just regular WTMI, at fool.com, uh, or go on Twitter, at TMF Financials, or go on Facebook, Motley Fool Financials, or do all three, or some combination of them. Let us know why you like the show, and we're going to pick out the most creative or foolish uh, response that we get, and the winner will get a very limited edition WTMI sweatshirt. Sounds good. On to the headlines. First headline for today, we've got Bloomberg here. The headline is U.S. stocks retreat as Fed plans more cuts in stimulus. So, David, as, uh, as basically everybody was expecting, I think, the Fed tailed off uh, its stimulus, the, the bond buying and the Treasury buying, just a little bit more mm-hmm. in yesterday's announcement. Market fell in response. What's your take on it? My take is... Are we sure the market fell because of yes, this? Yes, absolutely it's sure. An absolute certainty? Absolute certainty. That, that's what I'm The market sure. as a whole sent a message and said, we are not happy with this tapering. That's why I'm going down. Market I'm the market. at gmail.com. Market said, at gmail. Said, Mr. Market. Of course. Sorry. We're being formula. So, I mean, we have all this stuff going on in the emerging markets. I'm not an emerging markets expert. There's stuff going You're on there with their currencies, with their economy. We've got the Fed tapering. We've got valuations that maybe look a little bit frothy in some areas of the economy. So I'm not going to put this squarely on the Fed tapering. Maybe stocks are just going down for a little bit. They do that sometimes. Yeah, that's possible. What's interesting about the reaction to the tapering is that some of this, I think, is market participants, and we'll go ahead and say the market uh, just to, because that's easy, is a lack of trust in the Fed, I, I, I think. Because when you think about it, the Fed would be tailing off its stimulus because it thinks the economy has gotten to the point where it's strong enough that it can grow without additional monetary stimulus. And, and frankly, the, the fact that the Fed is still buying as much MBS and as many treasuries as it's buying on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. and the fact that interest rates are still, the, the Fed target rate is still 0 to 0.25%, that's still an awful lot of stimulus. But the fact that they're slowly drawing back the stimulus says the Fed is basically looking and saying the economy is getting stronger. We think it'll be okay without this. Some people not trusting that. We saw the GDP report come out this morning. Uh, this is the advanced report. So as we've seen with this, it'll this move. will change. But right now it's 3.2%. So that's down from 4.1% after Q3 was revised 8 million times. That's a pretty, if that holds, that's pretty strong growth. Um, and what's interesting is that uh, personal consumption spending, that the pace of that growth went up, and that's exactly what we want to see. Consumption spending is really important in our economy. And, at the, and this, we got that level of growth despite the fact that government spending was down 12.6% 
in Q, Q4. Right. 12 point drop of 12 point. That was mostly driven by defense spending, which is very volatile. But that's a huge drop, and that's, that's continued to be a storyline. Mm-hmm. The federal government continues to tail off its spending. I know everybody's obsessed with the debt, and I'm not going to say that the federal government debt isn't important. But when you're talking about recovering from recession and trying to get the economy back on track, mm-hmm. continuing to pull back spending at the government level, I just don't think that's the idea. I'm obsessed with the debt. I love the debt. You're an idiot. <laughs> I'm just saying. Speaking of personal spending, going on to the second, second headline. Second headline. On that note, second headline. This company loves some personal spending. Visa delivers impressive 14% growth as net income tops $1.4 billion for the quarter. U.S. Our spending. Patrick Morris. Patrick Morris. That's from Fool.com there. Uh, spending, or spending volume in the U.S. payment volume up 10% year over year. A little bit lower uh, across the globe. So overall up around 9%. Results look good. That's what we come to expect from Visa with its valuation, with the performance of the business in the past. Service charges, which is based on that volume, the revenue they make, up 9%. Data processing, which they get from each swipe, as we talked about a couple shows ago, up 13%. Operating margins at 66%. I mean, that's quite healthy. And, I don't know, you got to wonder if the Jeff Bezos of the world start to see that and say, man... 66% 66% operating margins, and maybe there's some more competition. But as it stands now, it's Visa and MasterCard. They're going to keep those margins pretty fat. $1.4 trillion in card spending. That's, uh, that's, really, that's really impressive. That's the, and, and that's a, sort of the network effect that Visa has, that's, or that's showing off the network effect. Um, w- one of the other things that's notable about the numbers here is you've got the revenue going up 11%. Expenses rose just 3%, so you're seeing that nice operating leverage that's inherent in this business there that as the revenue grows, Visa can get just more profitable because it doesn't have to add a lot of infrastructure, a lot of people Mm -hmm. to handle uh, additional revenue growth. A question for you is, I am not sure how I feel about the pace of share buybacks that Visa's doing. Uh, I I don't know that I'd call the valuation uh, of the shares crazy. Mm -hmm. I I don't think, I wouldn't call somebody crazy for buying at, at this valuation, but is this the best use of Visa's capital right now? Maybe not, but it's not like they're using up all their capital just to do buybacks. They still have a ton of other free cash flow that they can use to reinvest in technology and whatever else they need to do, and they are paying a dividend now. So maybe you'd rather see that as a dividend because the shares look maybe pricey, but they've always kind of looked pricey as they've marched up since they've been public. So it's really hard to argue with it. Maybe it's not the best use. And one of our writers, Jordan Wathen, wrote an interesting article yesterday saying that Visa and MasterCard in five to ten years are probably going to be seen as amazing dividend-paying stocks. We don't look at them that, that way today because the share prices look, the valuations are high, the dividend is 1%, 2%. It's nothing flashy. But the amount of cash that these businesses generate once those valuations normalize a little bit as growth slows, these could be big dividend-paying stocks. All right, let's hit the third headline. Third headline comes from DealBook, and we're looking at Blackstone here. Blackstone earnings more than doubled in the fourth quarter. David, I'll let you hit some of the numbers you were looking at, but assets under management, this is a key measure for any asset manager. Uh, in particular, uh, for Blackstone here, they get, such, they get much better margins because mm-hmm. they charge a lot more than, than a standard mutual fund company or something like that. Uh, assets under management up 27% year over year to $266 billion. And the real estate group, the real estate group is just killing That's it for Blackstone. Where it I mean, came that, from. that is where it's at. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and over the past quarter, you had 
uh, Hilton hitting the public markets. You had Bricksmore hitting the public markets. Uh, there was a third. I'm blanking on on what that was, but. The real estate, the real estate group in Blackstone has just been pr- very impressive. Yeah, if you look at the numbers, distributable earnings not quite as unbelievable as kind of what they call their economic income, which takes into account kind of unrealized gains, performance fees, management fees, all that stuff. Distributable earnings up forty six percent, which is still pretty darn impressive. Uh, it's hard to argue that Blackstone could have had a better year than they had in twenty thirteen. Just everything seemingly went right for them. Mm-hmm especially in the real estate portfolio there. Uh, Price has run up a little bit. The dividend was around 5% throughout 2013, now down to 3.5%. So price has come up a little bit, but you look at the business, it's hard to argue against Blackstone continuing to find new opportunities. A couple of shows ago, we talked about them moving into the Indian real estate business. They're just everywhere. So it's really hard for me to to be bearish on anything that Blackstone's doing. I know that sounds a little ridiculous, but they just have the track record that they're going to find the opportunity. No, I think it is. I, I, I'm bullish. I'm an owner of Blackstone myself. But, but I think it is worth pointing out that we, this isn't secular. We, we, we don't want to expect this kind of growth right. every quarter or every year because this is a bit of a, a, bit of a cyclical business. Uh, you want to think about when, when they're going to have good luck um, raising new funds. When, when the economy is down, when, when people aren't looking to give more money to private equity companies, that's going to make for tougher times for them. And also, it's been a better IPO market. So taking things to Hilton, uh, th- taking things like Hilton mm-hmm. to the public markets and getting a good price for it, that's the kind of thing that can happen now that can't happen in all environments. Right. Focus for today. It is earnings season. It'll continue to be earnings season. Next week, our expectation is that we'll see earnings from some of the mortgage REITs. Right. And I figured we'd take a look ahead and, and look at some of the look at some of the things that, that we'll, we expect to hear uh, or some of the things we want to hear about in those reports. Uh, a couple of things I'll, I'll point out ahead here. Since the last earnings report, Janet Yellen uh, was was confirmed as the next Fed chairwoman. In during the last earnings reports, uh, she had been nominated. They weren't really uh, these companies weren't really sure whether she was going to get the nod. It was widely believed that she was. Uh, the Fed has tapered twice now since the last earnings report. The first taper happened in December, so that was after these companies reported earnings in November. Um, and then in terms of interest rates, we, we've seen interest rates continue to rise. Or, or Yeah, so uh, Q3, the, the 10-year Treasury closed at 2.64%, and then we ended the year with the 10-year Treasury at 3.04%. And just for even more perspective there, uh, 2013 started with a 10-year at 1.86%. So wow. we saw that go from 1.86% to 3.04%. Um, so we're going to see some impact from that at the, uh, at the mortgage REITs. We will. And I actually have a chart for you. We have a chart of the 10-year Treasury uh, in the fourth quarter here. And in the short run, the stock prices of Annaly and American Capital Agency have basically been negatively correlated almost exactly with what the 10-year Treasury does. And for those of you listening, we can see the 10-year going up to 3%. 10-year goes up. Those and those great. other ones go down. So <laughs> when that happens, the securities on their books will fall in value. So you can see that the market's already anticipating that that happens. It doesn't wait until they release the earnings and say, oh, they lost that much in value. Now we're going to sell the share. So it might, it might be a rough quarter-ish, uh, not as bad as the second quarter, I think it was. Second quarter, yeah. Second quarter was. Um, but still, may not be pretty. Um, but if you look at American Capital Agency and Annaly, 
both have really reduced leverage, annually more so than American mm-hmm. capital, reduced the duration, hedged the portfolio. So it's probably not going to be a drastic shift in kind of what their book looks like. Um, so yeah, it'll be an interesting quarter, but both of them are looking so much further down the road now. The quarterly reports are becoming less interesting to me because both companies are basically saying, well, we're going to play for the two-year game instead of the quarterly game. So I don't think there's going to be too much to pay attention to, other than the fact that I think they'll be very happy that the Fed is tapering. They've been very vocal that they're not happy about the Fed taking up as much 25% of the MBS market. So something to hear about what they, what they think. Uh, the impact of the taper. So maybe the press release ports, r- reports won't be all that interesting, but uh, but the, I think the Annalee conference call promises to be fairly interesting. Wellington Denahan is she's a colorful character. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's a, a good way to put it. Uh, Mike Farrell, who is who is one of the founders of uh, Annalee and, and passed away recently over the last couple of years, uh, he was very outspoken. He was a colorful character, and I think Den. Uh, uh, Wellington Denahan has picked up where he left off. I'm going to read a little something that she said from last quarter's conference call that I just I thought was great. She said, Former Fed Chairman Alan Greenspan, who famously coined the term irrational exuberance, recently admitted that he was un- unappreciative of the impact human behavior had on economic in- outcomes. He underestimated the influence and response time of fear while seemingly ignoring the propulsive power of greed when coupled with easy money. For an intelligent man who proceeded over several bubbles, you you would think that he would have stumbled upon that epiphany sooner. That's great. Taking I mean, that's, a little jab at the Fed. Taking a big jab at the Fed. But I, I think we can we can expect to hear that kind of thing from uh, from Wellington on the call. So I think that's good reason to tune in there. Another interesting thing she said on the Q3 conference call, and again, I'll just, uh, this is a little bit shorter, but I'll read it. As lawmakers continue to solve for the best solutions to housing finance reform, I firmly believe that we remain poised to play a powerful role as a capital provider to the housing market for years to come. So when we think about um, moving away from the credit crisis and a lot of the new regulation that's come into place, and when we think about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and the the uncertainty and the changes that are taking place there, we think about the future of housing finance, you've potentially got an interesting source of capital here uh, with mortgage REITs. Um, There's some concerns about uh, the essentially unregulated or lesser regulated nature of these companies, um, but this could be... This, these could be big players in the, in the future of housing. And, and looking at where the stocks both sit with American Capital Agency and Annalee, both still trading at big discounts to that book value. And Gary Kane at American Capital Agency, he says, we're going to buy back our shares if we're trading at this discount. We're trading at a 15% discount with a liquid asset base that you can go to the market mm-hmm. and sell today. So he saw it as a no-brainer. And I mentioned that they're looking two, three years out. And some people might be saying, well, if they're looking that far out, why don't I just wait and buy them then when things get better? I would caution maybe against that. I'm not saying go out and buy them, but I'm saying that can change very quickly. Just because the outlook will look good then doesn't mean the price is going to stay depressed for two years until it gets better. So The market looks forward. Yeah, exactly. Don't try to say, okay, well, they're looking two years out. I'm going to stay away for two years until it looks good because by then in theory, valuations would, would move back up. All that is essentially so. the definition of market timing. If that you're, is if what they do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you gave me a good, good entry there to, uh, on, on the share buybacks. Through the third quarter uh, for 2013, two harbors, 
uh, my favorite of the group, had bought back uh, $2.5 million worth of shares. Uh, again, as I've said before, I think Two Harbors is a really well-managed mortgage REIT. And one of the things that differentiates them is whereas Annalee and American Capital Agency are primarily agency uh, mortgage REITs, so they're primarily investing in agency-backed mortgage-backed right. securities, Two Harbors has, has taken is looking at all of the avenues for them to be able to invest in the real estate market. Uh, right now, one of the places that they're going is uh, excess mortgage servicing rights. Um, in the third quarter, they said uh, those remain the best use of capital in the current investment environment. So the flexibility in their model gives them an opportunity to put capital to work in the mortgage market in different types of ways. And, um, and mortgage servicing rights go up as interest rates go up. So those will probably be a nice little boost for Two Harbors this quarter. And my hope is that they'll keep a good eye on risk and that they'll continue to manage the portfolio well going forward because while I like the flexibility of being able to invest in lots of different things besides just the agency-backed paper, you do uh, you have a whole other level or multiple levels of risk that come into the picture right. when, you're, when you're investing in these kind of things. Indeed. Uh, going on to our mailbag, we have an email address. That email address is wtmi at fool.com. Send us your question. Send us your thoughts. Send us whatever you want. We just okay. like hearing from you. Uh, the question for today comes from Max uh, from Twitter. Uh, Max's Twitter address is at Niedermt. I'm not sure what that means. But <laughs> anyway, the question is, Markel has 12% of its portfolio in Berkshire Hathaway stock, is owning both bad for diversification. So if you own both Markel and Berkshire Hathaway, are you under-diversified because Markel owns that much Berkshire Hathaway stock? No. And we talk about Markel and their great management team, great investment officer, uh, Tom Gaynor, and how he's a great stock picker, which he is. Mm -hmm. But that's not all Markel invests in with their investment portfolio. Only 17% of their investment portfolio, as of last quarter, is in equities. So 83% is in corporate debt, government debt, cash, cash equivalents, et cetera. So it used to be bigger. It was, it was 26% of the portfolio before the Altera acquisition. Altera invested mostly in bonds. So when that right. came over, it diluted the part of the equity. So 12% of 17% is not that much. Um, and Markel has all the other businesses going on. Great, some ma- great math you're doing there. Yes, Look very good. Not so much. Uh, so I wouldn't be concerned that this is... Uh, hurting your diversification. I would, I would also point out that you, you're looking at the, the investment portfolio on the one hand, but then you've got the, the core operating business of the insurance business, you've got Markel Ventures, and then you've got the, the investment portfolios over here. Uh, so really, you're gonna, it, it's, the performance of Berkshire Hathaway stock is going to have a very small impact on Markel's overall performance. However, you're probably going to see some correlation between the two mm-hmm. companies because they both operate in the insurance market. They're both investing in, uh, in uh, fixed income securities for the insurance operations. So you're going to see some correlation between those two. But I don't think because Markel owns a bunch of Berkshire Hathaway stock that that's a reason to be concerned about that. Indeed. Game for the day. We've got a little fool in the blank today. We've got two scenarios here, two blanks. We're going to fool them in. First scenario... We've got blank will be the first big four U.S. bank CEO to leave his post. David, fool in that blank. I think, it's, I think he's the best, and I think he's going to be the first out. John Stumpf. And he's, wow. been, he's been with Wells Fargo and legacy Wells Fargo. Came over with Norwest for something 30 years. Proven to be a very good banker. He's made it through the financial crisis. He took over, right? It was kind of getting, getting the worst there. Uh, 
has led the resurgence of the mortgage market. I don't think he has a lot to prove. I think he's been there his whole career. Do so you think out. that's a reason for him to leave? I think he drops the mic and says, I feel good about who I'm handing this off to, whoever that may be at Wells Fargo. So I think Maybe he just keeps doing it because he's a banker and he likes being a banker. He also probably likes playing golf, so maybe he'll retire. Maybe he does. Although we, we should say this could be, you could say someone will be fired too. It's not just leaving on their oh, own. Oh, no, no, no. You I know. fire someone. I know. Yeah, I, and, and, and that's my, that's my expectation because I'm going with Brian Moynihan. I think Brian Moynihan has done a really good job. I don't think Brian Moynihan gets quite the respect that maybe he deserves. Maybe he doesn't deserve it. Maybe I, I think too highly of him. But I, I don't know that he's the, the forward-looking guy that, that uh, investors and that the, the board maybe at Bank of America is going to be looking for. Uh, he's also, I, I just don't know that he's the, the banker that we want at the, at the top of Bank of America. So I don't know. Uh, as Bank of America continues to clean up its problems, get some more on solid footing, I think of all of the big four, he stands the most chance of, of getting edged out as they're looking for, for somebody, I hate to say it, maybe flashier. I, I think that's possible because when you look at his expertise, obviously he's got the law degree, he's kind of a lawyer by trade at the very beginning of his career. Then with Fleet Boston, he was kind of their merger and acquisition guy. He was the savvy boardroom, I'm going to make a great deal. And once Bank of America works through the legal issues, we know they're not making any more big acquisitions. Right. So it's kind of, where does, does his experience fit? fit? It's not necessarily a traditional banker like a John Stump. Right. All right, second. Second scenario. Second scenario. Blank is one country I'm interested in learning more about. D- is, this, is this just in general? In general. Like, and inve- investing purposes and whatever. Okay, I'm going to go with... Broaden your uh, horizons. Uh, I'm actually going to go with Sweden. Hmm. And... The reasons that I, that I started looking at Sweden in the first place uh, are, are a little bit convoluted, but what, I, what I've realized is that there's some very strong banks, uh, some very good banking culture there, and I'd like to learn more about, I've, I've been doing a little bit of study, I'd like to learn more about why Sweden's banks, and by extension Denmark as well, sort of that Scandinavia area, has had such good experience in banking. I imagine Sweden has good air quality. <laughs> <laughs> well, you think? That's, that's random. It seems like it's very clean over there. Um, oh, God. He went with the laugh. I did go with the laugh. That was, I'm going with... Uh, the laugh doesn't stop. I'm going with India. And okay. I mentioned on the show before, nearly 20% of the world's working population in India. There's a lot of structural problems over there with regulations, uh, just kind of overall poverty levels. But the opportunity there is enormous. They're going to surpass China in terms of how many people like in the next 20 years that are, mm-hmm. are working. Um, so the demographics are in their favor. Regulations, not so much. But it's a very interesting country. It's enormous. They do a lot of things, a lot of technology. I want to learn more about India. I hate to say it, but I think you beat me on that one because I think if, if you learn about Sweden and you learn about India, you'll probably get more mileage from knowing more about India in the you years probably to come. Just saying. All right, let's finish off as we always do. On the Twitter sphere, you can reach us on Twitter. We're at TMF Financials. David, what is our first and only tweet for the day? First tweet is from Phil Young. He is at PhilYoung360. He says, I had two meetings yesterday with people who run very successful businesses. One shared belief. Belief. Do the opposite to everyone else. How are you doing the opposite of everyone else right now? Hmm. I don't know. I don't think I'm doing enough the opposite. What do, you, what do you do different than most people? Well, from an investing perspective, and, and I, I'm 
I'm buying, I, I, I'm, I'm eating my own cooking in terms of buying financial stocks. And that's probably not the opposite of a lot of people who listen to this show. But if you look at the, look at the way that people are, the perception mm-hmm. of banks and financial institutions right now, if you listen to what people say about investing in banks and financial institutions right now, I think that that does run counter to, to what most people are thinking at the moment. I'm going to steal yours. I think that's probably correct. I think we forget how much people... I think that's a good idea to steal. I think we forget how much people really hate banks or just completely say, I'm never investing in a bank. Because we talk about it all the time. So to us, it's like, yeah, you invest in a bank, no big deal. But I think probably eight out of ten investors would say, no way, are you crazy? So I think it may be nine. Nine. Nine, nine and a half. Nine and, nine and a half. That, that half of like an a, investor, like a kid. <laughs> yeah, like kids, kids running around. Yeah. No, I won't. I won't invest. Exactly. In that. That's so crazy. Something to think about. Do something different. All right. Well, that's the show for today. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at TMF Financials. You can find us on Facebook, TM or uh, Motley Fool Financial Services. I'm Matt Copenheffer. This is David Hansen. We'll see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.